when I was in junior high and high school, uh, went to public school and elementary school, junior high and high school, I went to a private school, uh, Metro Christian Academy in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, we would have chapel on Tuesdays and uh, we had spiritual emphasis week. And my memory, and I'm, I, I don't know if this is accurate, uh, but my memory is that every time for spiritual emphasis week, like a guy or a girl would come in and they would have this really wild story of this wild life that they led and then Jesus. And I got this impression that that's, the, that's way cooler. It's really cool if you have this dark, hard story and then Jesus. At the same time... Um, when I started driving, I had not been listening to the radio as much as many of you, and so I didn't really know what kind of music I liked, but I was driving my mint green 900S Saab, and um, I needed to buy some music, and so I would just find, like, I just like, what, what, are, what songs do I like? I really like that song, Show Me the Way, Come Sail Away. So I bought the, the greatest hits, the Sticks. You Sticks fans? <laughs> Mr. Mr. Roboto? Anyone? So Spiritual Emphasis Week, Metro Christian Academy, this guy's up there, he's got like a leather vest and long hair, and he said, the first time I got high was at a Styx concert, and my friends all turn around and they look at me. (laughs) And the reason those two memories continue to uh, be interesting to me is, I still have such an impoverished view of God's pursuit of his people that I still kind of think that a cool story is cooler than the story of someone like myself who always believed that God existed. Who, when pastors told me to read my Bible and pray, I would. I still got kicked out of Sunday school because I was a punk, but I would read my Bible and pray. and... And I think that... I don't, I don't know about you. I don't know if you have been led to believe that your story of God's pursuit of you isn't cool. But one of the most profound things about Luke 15 and really the story of Scripture is it points out to us that we just do not see the running Father in all of His glorious, loving pursuit. And so we don't realize how beautiful it is when He gently pursues Perhaps you have a better imagination than me and you don't struggle with that. Before Easter, we were talking about uh, the parables that Jesus told. He told over 20, but we just focused on about five of them. And it's because in Luke chapter 8, he said, these are the secrets of the kingdom. It was a, a way that he was gently explaining to people the joyful life he was about to purchase for them. I believe that if we had heard the parables when Jesus was still on earth, they would have been just wildly confusing. And then after he rose from the dead, we're like, oh, that's how this makes sense. And especially this story in Luke chapter 15. I believe when Jesus told this story, if you're taking it at face value, you're like, okay, I can run away from God through miserable duty, or I can run away from God through wild living. What's the alternative? And Jesus didn't answer. He just implied that it is the embrace of the loving Father. Well, how do I get the embrace of the loving Father? Well, now we know through a trusting relationship with Him. When Jesus rose from the dead, we realized with the disciples, He's not a political 
or a military king, though he will be. He's a king over sin and death. So I want to point something out that the risen king, who, by the way, he is risen, that's not just for Easter. The reason that we worship on Sundays is because he is risen. And that continues to be our hope and faith, our peace, our joy. No one worshipped on Sunday 2,000 years ago, or 3,000, or 4,000. It was the first day of the week. We switched because a man rose from the dead and said, We've been getting this kind of wrong. The risen king frees us into real life with him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you help us to learn from this story? Our tendencies towards miserable duty and towards reactionary wild living. And instead, Lord, would we see you running after us? Calling us with love, out of love, into relationship with you. Amen. The risen king frees us from irreligion. I don't particularly love the word irreligion. The old school way would be licentiousness, but I like that even less than irreligion. Wild living, right? And this is a, this is a very regular thing for pastors to talk about. But what we notice from Luke 15 is the very human thought of the younger son that he knows what will make him the most happy. He knows what will make him the most fulfilled. Sometimes you and I act like the younger son out of a reaction. We just, something happened and we just run the other way. We try and make ourselves feel better in the moment. Sometimes it's a lot of planning. Sometimes it's kind of an accident. And sometimes it's because we just think that we know better. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, Jesus told this story. And he said there was a man who had two sons. I highly encourage you to write an S. In that little heading in your Bible that says the parable of the prodigal son. Because Jesus didn't call it that. Or cross it out and call it the parable of the running father. And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you he's planning his speech. You know, like you do. To the boss, to your spouse, to your child, to your parents, to God. Something happens at 2 p.m., you're like, I'm going to need to get home and pray about that. Prepare the speech, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So he was probably watching for him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If you had been there, you would have thought it was an awkward moment. Because he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, did you notice that the speech is shorter? (laughs) You know why the speech is shorter? Because the father interrupted him. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And the servants are like, I kind of wanted to hear the rest of the speech. (laughs) And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked about the speech. Asked what these things meant. He didn't ask about the speech. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came and has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The reason I'm reading this, I preached on this last week, if you weren't able to attend. Um, Verse 30 is true, by the way. He's not actually even exaggerating the story. What the older son says is true. And some of us kind of resonate. Like, yeah, the younger son should be punished. We should have let him have the whole speech. And then like, that's not the heart of the father. And it's okay for us to feel a little uncomfortable. That's right, Timmy. Yeah. Oftentimes that door opens on its own. That's what I thought was happening. Bring it back. You're a professional. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You and I might resonate a little bit with the older son. And the reason is we have both of them in us. Some of us have squashed the older son, some of us have squashed the younger son, so we mostly live out of one. But you and I as humans have both tendencies in us. And so if you resonate a little bit, it's all right. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The risen king frees us not just from miserable duty and thinking that God desires our obedience instead of our delight. It also frees us from irreligion. I have to point something out. This story begins with greed. The younger son is saying to the dad, I would rather have money and treat you as though you were dead than live this way. You and I get uncomfortable with the word greed because it's not considered a good word in and of itself, but our culture absolutely affirms it as a way of life. I've been in ministry for about 20-ish years, and I've had people come into my office and tell me some pretty wild stories. 
It's relatively difficult to surprise me. I'm sure all of you could because you have really compelling stories and I'm sure if you tried, you could. No one's ever come into my office and told me that they struggle with greed, ever. And yet if you read the book of Luke, Jesus will repeatedly say in in incredibly strong terms, this is a very destructive human tendency. And so as he's telling us about our tendency to be like the younger brother, be like the older brother, he begins with greed. And you and I need to know that the human condition is one where we're going to struggle with greed. Now the older brother would say, no, I have never failed to tithe. Well, that's a different kind of spiritual sickness. Using the words always and never to prove your great obedience. The younger brother just doesn't care. He thinks all the money's for him. The gospel response is careful, or not careful, cheerful planning and generosity. Did you know that statistically people give less and less as they make more and more? Just across the board. You know why? Because humans are prone to greed. And greed is a destructive thing that Jesus wants to free us from. There are two ways that our good desires, because you and I are all made in the image of God, we have good desires. There are two ways that we get twisted. One is to think that God just desires our obedience, and so we become the miserable, dutiful older brother. The other way is we just think that we know better. So we're going to do what feels good in the moment, thinking that that will make us feel better. And I know that we are in this room, because we have at least some beginning of a sense, maybe we don't always know what's better. Do you know that God desires our happiness even more than us? That God knows what it means to be fully human even better than we do? I'm a big, big fan of the Ten Commandments because I believe they're wildly misunderstood. And this text, and and then using the Ten Commandments as as a lens point out to us how we think we know better. And I'm going to go through how I think we know better and then I'm going to go through how I think the culture would describe each of the Ten Commandments in order. Number one is who we worship. And I think that we know well how to worship. If we just get outside once in a while, God's just in nature and it's fine, right? God says don't worship stuff and we're like, no, stuff's pretty cool. We know, we know, we know about stuff and we kind of like it. Commandment number three is mostly about hypocrisy. But if we believe we've got number one and number two down, how could we even be a hypocrite? Commandment number four is about time, learning to Sabbath, to rest and worship and pray and feast one day a week. But we think we know better about what to do with our time, right? One day, are you crazy? Commandment number five, honor our father and mother. Who knows our parents better than us? We know how to honor them. We've got it covered. It's fine. We've got it covered. Remember, number six is about murder, which Jesus extended to how we treat, just basically how we treat other people. We know how to treat people with our hands and words, right? What about that person that cut you off? How'd you respond? Maybe a little bit like Jesus describes in Matthew 6. Commandment seven, adultery. We just think we understand our sexuality, don't we? Is it perhaps possible that God understands sexuality better than us? Has a life of life purchased for us and he might know better than us? 
Commandment number eight, lying. I know none of us would exaggerate stories or minimize a negative story or perhaps try real hard to impress people or massage the truth a little bit up or down. But they, I'm talking about that tendency. I'm not trying to beat you up. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to notice in yourself a younger brother tendency to think with your stories, perhaps you know better. Commandment number nine, stealing. You're like, I've never stolen anyone's TV. Do you ever massage your time at work a little bit? Like, you know you're worth 24% more than you're getting paid, so sometimes you just check out at work a little bit. Commandment number 10, we just don't even think should be a commandment. (laughs) Coveting. It's just not that big of a deal to want other people's stuff and other people's people. That can't be that big of a deal, right? And here's why I believe the culture would try and convince us. Commandment number one, well, you're very spiritual. And that's probably enough. You're a very spiritual person, right? Commandment number two, we kind of think stuff's pretty awesome. So why not worship it? Like stuff's pretty cool. I think our culture believes that the only kind of actual hypocrisy is thinking that there are true things, which puts us in a wildly nihilistic, awkward position. The only way we can be hypocritical is actually believe... That's how it comes across to me in TV, commercials, music. Commandment number four, Sabbath. I think our culture would be like, as long as you catch a sunset and Instagram it, you're good. You've Sabbathed. It's fine. Commandment number five, Honor your father and mother. I think we only do that if they're cool. Like if they change their wardrobe after a while, like they figured out that their clothes from the 70s don't work. Like then I can still honor my parents. I kind of think that's how we treat it. Commandment number six, don't murder. Jesus said don't call people fools. And we're like, yeah, that's right. Be nice. Unless they're conservatives. If they're conservatives, all bets are off. And I know there are a lot of conservative thinkers in the room. I'm talking about how the culture pushes back on it. Like we should be tolerant and nice unless... And maybe we have even more to learn about neighbor love. Commandment number seven, no adultery. I believe our culture would say it's your body, and it is your body. But maybe we need some help knowing how to be fully human with it in a world subject to decay. Commandment number eight, don't lie. I believe... The culture would encourage us to manipulate as best we can, when and where we can, in a savvy fashion. We really don't think lying is a big deal. We don't like the word lying, but pretty much, especially in business, like manipulate when and where you can, get ahead. Commandment number nine, steal. I mean, believe the culture would imply that we should just cut corners. And what about coveting? I mean, how else are we supposed to know what we want if we don't covet? My point is, you and I have this tendency to think that we know what's best for us and what feels good in the long run. And Jesus is saying we have a tendency, like the younger brother, to just run away and it's not healthy. It's not the life of the life that he purchased for us. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we have some sense that perhaps God knows better. And we pray, your will be done. C.S. Lewis, quoting Jesus, nails this and says there are pretty much two kinds of people. There are those that say, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done.
And that's written real compellingly, and we can talk about it theologically. But my point is, and I believe Jesus' point in this parable is, you and I need to be grown out of the tendency to think that we know what's best for us. And the irony of that is, when we acquiesce to the Holy Spirit, who's unstoppably good anyway, we're grown into the most full version of ourselves. He doesn't take you out of you. He gives you the most full you available. The risen king frees us from irreligion, which is deathly. I think it's important that we get our words right. I think the reason that we want to follow the commands of Scripture is not because when we disobey, it's wrong. That word, I heard it a lot growing up. And it always seemed to me to have a little more firmness to it than maybe was helpful. Do you know what I mean? I think when we say that I don't do that because it's wrong, implies a level of understanding that I'm not always sure we have. Compared to, say, the word destructive. In our modern culture, we're less and less confident that when we sin, when we lie to someone or um, whatever other sin you think of, we think that that just has to do with us, and maybe it has to do with them. And in a traditional culture, we would understand that it has to do with the whole community, and we would hide other kinds of sin, like addiction. Traditional culture would hide different sins than a modern culture. In our modern culture, we believe it's all about us, and what happens in our head when we believe, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't sin because it's wrong, is it doesn't translate into any kind of different life decisions. And so whether or not we know better or not, we look at the list of commands that God gives that are echoed throughout the New Testament repeatedly in almost every letter. A retelling of them in different uh, language. It doesn't get us anywhere. I believe the right word for why to avoid the sins listed in the Bible is because they're deathly. They're destructive to our neighbors and to our own heart. That's why scripture teaches us to avoid them. Not so that we can become miserable, dutiful, older sons. But so that we grow into men and women who know how to love God and love one another and thereby learn to love ourselves. And the other thing I like about switching the word wrong with the word destructive is it just wipes out a lot of our arrogance. You know, a lot of times followers of Christ come across as really arrogant. And the part of the reason is we're so passionate, which is good. But sometimes we believe, we, we put ourselves in the place where we're supposed to be able to explain all the things of God. And I'm not sure that's always a good place for us. Parents, this overlaps to how we parent our children. We are teaching them about right and wrong. But what we're really teaching them about is, as best we know, decisions that are wise, choosing those, decisions that are destructive, running away from those. And that affects how we parent. Not just the things they can and can't do, but how we parent. And this applies even if your children are older. It applies differently, but it still applies. The risen king frees us from our irreligious tendency to run away from God believing that we know best which is deathly and into the arms of the loving father 
how? How do we just stop being religious or irreligious people? That's what's so interesting about this parable. I believe before Jesus rose from the dead, it was like, well, that was a really compelling story. What do I do? What do I then believe? This is where sermons matter and the songs that we sing matter. And how we pray matters because what we're attempting to do, go into our being and notice our religiousness and our irreligiousness. Our belief about God that he just desires our duty or our belief that I don't know about him, I'm just going to do this because it feels good. Both of those things are destructive to us. So we notice that. And what we're trying to do is take that noticing and then place inside of it the living argument of the good news of Jesus. That he loves you. Because he is he and you are you. But our tendencies towards religion and irreligion are a big deal. The entire wrath of God came down on Jesus to cover... Theological word is atone for our sin. Rescuing us back into relationship with Him. So we learn to think about the gospel. We learn to remind ourselves of the gospel. I would strongly encourage you to buy a print of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. See the younger son and the father and there's the older son on the right. Get a picture of this. Put it on your desk. I don't know if you put it in your car. I don't want anybody to have a wreck. As a way of remembering the living argument of the gospel of Jesus that frees us from our deathly tendencies, both of religion and irreligion, into the arms of the Father. As I said, this affects how we parent. We want the motivation of our children towards life to be a delight. And that's why when you discipline your children, I would encourage some version of this is how I discipline my kids. Say your name is Caroline Kelton Blazer and I love you and nothing will ever change that. And you cannot kick the dog. (laughs) But do you see how the motivation is different and the order is different? If you have kids zero to five, you're mostly just protecting them. But you discipline them in light of love. Six to ten, you are introducing them to the world, which is terrifying. Kind of ten and up, you're beginning to interpret. They're learning from other places, but you're still their interpreter. Much to their chagrin, often. Fifteen and up, you become more of a mentor. Even though you still have something to do with their safety and they may not be coming to you as often as they want or as often as you want, still some version of, your name is Julia Page Blazer, and I love you, and nothing will ever change that, and you can't hit your sister. Do you see the difference? From a hundred yards away, it might look like the older brother, but it's not. It's a motivation of love. And we can only do that. Parents, if you are not a follower of Jesus, that's going to be really hard to do because you don't know that you're loved in a deep way. The only way we can trust God to love neighbor well is if we know that we're loved by Him. If we look at the cross 
of Christ where the entire wrath of God came down and then we know God's not holding out on us. That's how we are freed from our religious tendencies to just run away from God and do whatever feels good. That's how we're freed from... I got that backwards. That's how we're freed from our religious tendencies that would believe God is a harsh taskmaster and understand Him as a running father. That's how we're freed from our irreligious tendencies to always do whatever feels good, thinking we know best, is by remembering in our head and singing and praying the gospel. So I'd encourage you to pray, and I believe this would be world-changing for you and for me if we learn to pray this. Lord, free me from my religion and my irreligion into a life of life. If you're a follower of Jesus, he already is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you see in this the good news that there is a life of delight, knowing that God loves you, likes you, has atoned for your sin in the work of Christ, and called you into real life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for telling this story. That we might see in it our tendencies to act out against you and perhaps even worse, to believe that all you desire is our duty. Thank you that you desire our delight and have purchased it on the cross. Help us to follow you joyfully with our words and with our hands, with our stuff, with our families, because of your great love. Amen.